Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Welcome back, everybody, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. And please be sure to follow Joe and I on Facebook and YouTube. You can find us at the front line with Joe and Joe. Like, subscribe, share, hit that little bell on YouTube. We're, hold that, we're told that that does wonders for, for our reach, so please do that. And today, we are very pleased and honored to be joined by Dr. Peter Kreeft. And we are going to be discussing a very important topic, the unity that exists between the natural law, the deposit of the faith, and the social doctrine of the Catholic Church. Now, for those of you who do not know who Dr. Kreeft is, I want to give him a brief introduction. Dr. Peter John Kreeft is a professor of philosophy at Boston College and the King's College, a convert to Roman Catholicism. He's the author of 95 books on Christian philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Kreeft was born in Patterson, New Jersey. Yay. (laughs) He took his AB at Calvin College and an MA at Fordham University. He completed his doctoral studies also at Fordham and briefly did postgraduate studies at Yale University. He is currently on the philosophy faculty at the Department of Philosophy of Boston College. He loves his five grandchildren, four children, one wife, one cat, and one God. Dr. Peter Kreeft, welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Excellent. So I'm going to kick it over to Joe. Dr. Kreeft, we always start with the prayer because all good things start with the prayer. And this is a very good thing. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. amen. Remember, Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, before you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. So yeah, thanks again, Dr. Kreef. I'm going to kick it over to Joe and we'll get into the meat and potatoes. Before we get into actually the subject at hand, uh, I found it interesting that you were a convert. I think that's great. Um, And you went to a Calvinist college and talk a little bit about that. Like, how did you find the Catholic church? What I read is a professor asked you to investigate the claims of the church that traced back to the early church. And that was with a tipping point. Could you elaborate on that for our listeners, doctor? As a Calvinist, I was taught that the Catholic Church was the whore of Babylon. Uh, But it seemed very intelligent and very beautiful and uh, uh, a terribly important force for good in history. So uh, I became enamored of things Catholics and thought it was a temptation. So I took a uh, a course in church history from a Calvinist professor, a a preacher, a very good man. Uh, The very first day of the course, he said, what's the difference between our notion of the church and the Catholic's notion of the church? But he had an answer to that. So he explained the difference. He said, well, 
uh, here's the Catholic notion of the church. Uh, the church is like a tree and it started small, like a, a little acorn, and it grew into a big oak. And all these uh, doctrines that we don't agree with and Catholics have are, are just leaves on that tree. Uh, and uh, around 1500, it got so corrupt uh, that uh, some uh, Protestants thought they had to uh, uh, leave it. Uh, so they tried planting other trees, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, but you can't do that because uh, Jesus planted that tree. So if you meet um, your Catholic friend and you say, what kind of a Christian are you? And they say, I'm a Catholic. And uh, what kind of are you? Well, I'm a Calvinist. And they're going to say, oh, you're in the church John Calvin founded 500 years ago. You're in the wrong church. We're in the church Jesus Christ founded 2,000 years ago. What do you say to that? I said to myself, that's exactly why I want to be here. I wanted to answer that question. I didn't want to become a Catholic. I thought it was a temptation. Uh, so nobody had an answer. So he drew another picture on the board, a picture of Noah's Ark with barnacles on the bottom. Anybody know what barnacles are? Yeah, they're growths that uh, get into the wood and eventually they'll sink a ship. What do you have to do with them? Break them off. Well, that's what the reformers did. All these Catholic doctrines that we don't believe, which we don't find in the Bible, they're not leaves that grew on the tree. They're barnacles that came from elsewhere. So it's the Catholics that are the new kids on the block, not, not us. We're the old kids. I said to myself, that's exactly what I want to believe because I don't want to become a Catholic. So I raised my hand and said, Professor, you mean if I took a time machine and my Catholic friend was in that time machine too, we both went back to the first century. We both were worshipped together in the early church, that I as a Protestant would feel more at home than he as a Catholic. And the professor said, that's a very weird way of, of putting my point, but yes, you're right, that's exactly right, I, I say. I said to myself, well, good. Now, <clears throat> all I have to do is read the church fathers and the earliest Christian documents, and I'll prove to myself how Protestant they are, and I'll prove that I'm in the, wrong, in the right church. Well, you know the rest of the story. Mm -hmm. Cardinal Newman said, a Catholic, uh, a Protestant can't be too careful about what he reads. <laughs> yeah, I found that interesting when I, when I had first heard about your conversion story. This is a number of years ago. I, I, I'm, if I remember, I saw a video on YouTube. That's what I thought in my mind is you're a modern Newman. You, 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 you go to look. And I followed his path. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and it's great. But what it does say, and what I think a lot of people should realize, if you know, Joe and I, we like to think in our minds, you know, we didn't just blindly come back into the church. OK, we obviously saw the world. We saw what it offered. We, then we looked into the church and got more deeply into the faith that we were born into. And that said, yeah, that's right. We like to emphasize to people, those outside the Catholic Church, don't listen necessarily to the people who are telling you what the church is. Why don't you go into the church documents and the church history and the church yeah. fathers? And look, think about it for yourself, and I bet you come to a different conclusion. Yep, yep. You know, Walker Percy, the uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist, uh, when asked why he's a Catholic, replied, what else is there? <laughs> well, there it is. <laughs> there it is. That's a pretty good answer. So that's I want to keep this. That's basically what St. Peter said in John 6 when Jesus taught about the Eucharist. And that's a hard teaching. And Jesus said, are you going to go away? Peter said, well, we're going to go to yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm going to kick it over to Joe. I, uh, just so you know, Dr. Creep, what we do on uh, the front line with Joe and Joe, obviously this is a, a fairly weighty topic that we're talking about. We're blue-collar guys. We're, you know, we're kitchen table, politics, culture, and religion. Um, in this case, 
philosophy. Um, and uh, so we're, we're speaking to people out there about pretty wavy topics, but we do it in our own Jersey style. Okay. But so we want to define a few terms with that. I'm going to hand it over to Joe and let's get into it. Obviously we want to talk about the unity that exists between the natural law, the deposit of faith and the social doctrine of the church. Um, but I think, as Joe said, why don't we define our terms briefly before we talk about the harmony that exists between them all? And also, I think we have to t- touch on sometimes people feel that one supersedes the other. Um, and I think we need to clear that up, too. So we give it to you. What a radical thing to do. Define your terms. Properties <laughs> <laughs> or something. Well, nowadays, the, know nowadays you're talking about? Three, just talking through your hash. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I never heard a politician say, let's define our terms. Uh, that's probably the, that's a problem. Yeah, maybe they yeah. should. So, okay, let's define natural law. A law, what's a law? Any law is uh, something that comes from a reason and a will. It's planned, it's ordered, so it comes from reason, and it, uh, it expresses somebody's will. This ought to be. Okay. Uh, uh, two sources of law, human beings have reason and will, so we make human laws. Uh, God, uh, in whose image we are made, has supreme reason and supreme will, so he makes natural law. And he makes two kinds of natural law. He makes law for beings that don't have reason and will, that is the rest of the universe. And it all follows uh, scientific law, and science is our, our way of discovering those kind of natural laws. And he also makes natural moral laws, laws about how humans ought to behave and what we ought to love and what we ought to hate and what we ought to do. Uh, so in terms of moral law, there's two different kinds. There's human law. Uh, if you go 100 miles an hour down uh, the turnpike where the speed limit is 50, you get a ticket uh, because you're not supposed to do that. And then there's divine law. And most of divine law comes under the heading of natural law. There's all sorts of other divine laws that God gave to Israel for a while, but they're a particular society that don't bless. But uh, the natural moral law, summarized the Ten Commandments, are binding for all human beings everywhere. And it's called the natural law for two reasons. It comes from human nature. If we had a different nature, if we were Martians, if, for instance, we had uh, two wills, or two reasons, or two heads, or two brains, or or twenty sexes, uh, we'd have different laws about property and about sexual activity and so on. But we have human nature. Here we are, and we all have the same human nature. If you deny that, you must be either a racist or a Nazi or some other kind of weirdo. Uh, all human beings are human. Uh, if you're a Democrat, you can't believe that unborn humans are human because then abortion is murder. But let's leave that away. Uh, I love your spirit. I just wanted to add that in. <laughs> yeah, just, just throw that in. Yeah. <laughs> so natural law means two things. Uh, a law that God instituted uh, that flows from the needs of human nature. Uh, thou shalt not kill. Why? Because we need life. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Why? Because we need truth. Thou shalt not steal. Why? Because we need property. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Why? Because we need children and family. Uh, thou shalt uh, not uh, defraud your neighbor. You shall not uh, uh, covet what belongs to him and not to you. Uh, respect your parents. These are all 
flowing from human nature itself. They're laws for the flourishing of human nature. We become uh, healthy and holy and happy when we obey uh, our own nature. Uh, but we're so stupid we uh, forget or deliberately ignore it, so we have to be reminded. So there's, there's the Ten Commandments as our external reminder. But we have an internal reminder called conscience. That's the second meaning of natural, natural law, naturally known. Uh, it's, it's, it's our moral motherboard. We, we, we can rip up a lot of our programming, but we can't really rip up our moral motherboard. Uh, deep down, your conscience bothers you when you sin. And you know darn well what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. There are very few moral dilemmas that are intellectual rather than moral. Uh, once in a while, there's uh, a serious problem about, you know, is this war just or not? Or what's the appropriate punishment for this crime? Nobody thinks that Satan is better than God or that evil is better than good or that we really ought to hate and lie and steal and, and murder each other. We all know that. So that's naturally known and it's a law of our own nature. Now, every society in the history of the world, every culture and every religion, has believed in the natural law, some version of the natural law. In Hinduism, it's called the Rita. In Taoism, it's called the Tao. Uh, we are living in the first society in the history of the world, the majority of whose intellectuals in formal education, universities, uh, and informal education, through media, no longer believe that there is a natural law. Uh, this is history's most dangerous experiment. Uh, and it will end either in the destruction of our society uh, or in the refutation of the natural law. There is no such thing as an illusion. Everybody else, even though they loved it and profited by it, uh, were wrong and we're right and we can play God and there is no law other than the laws that we make. Those two is more likely. Well, there's another possibility. We might repent and go back to the natural law. And again. Uh, yeah, I want to just, uh, Dr. Crete, if I may. So then, just real quick, you're at the front line with Joe and Joe, everyone. Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello on the Veritas Catholic Network, and we're having a great conversation with Dr. Peter Crete. So, Dr. Crete, let me ask you this. Before we talk about the positive faith and social doctrine, then is the, the antithesis of the natural law, would you say, would that be moral relativism? The denial of the moral, uh, natural moral law is moral relativism, right? Uh, if there's a law that binds in all times and places and circumstances and individuals, that's moral absolutism. All the great saints and sages have been moral absolutists, even, even pagans like Plato and Aristotle. Uh, most intellectuals today are moral relativists. Uh, believe in human law, laws that we make up, but what we, what we make up, we cannot make. Mm. If, if, if I give you rights, then I can take those rights away from you. And if, if the government gives you a right to life, then the government can take that right away from you. But uh, if your very nature gives you those rights, uh, nobody can take your nature away from you. Nobody can make you something other than human. Excellent. That's the point of uh, Benedict. Now, what we're what we're in today, what we're in today is is a kind of astonishing insanity in which not only are people denying the natural moral law, they're even denying the the natural physical law. I mean, 
at least here in Boston, I read the Boston Globe, and they're 100% in favor of the transgender revolution. And the University of Rhode Island just penalized a professor for thought crime, questioned the uh, philosophy behind transgenderism. Well, transgenderism means that it is we, not God or nature, that makes you a man or a woman. If science says you're a man, if every cell in your body says you're a man, if, if all the objective data says you're a man, you feel like a woman, uh, they're right, they're wrong, and you're right, you are a woman. So the next step, I suppose, would be uh, I'm an infant, or I'm an ape, or I'm God. I can be what I want to be. Isn't that's that ultimately not the That's what our commencement speakers tell, tell our kids. Almost every commencement speaker says uh, this incredible lie, you can be whatever you want to be. That's not true. That's simply a lie. Right. You can't be whatever you want to be. Isn't that exactly what what, um, what Nietzsche alluded to when he said that once you kill God, you then have to become God? Ultimately, the idea is not that you want to be this, that, or the other thing. Ultimately, the problem is biblical. It goes back to the beginning. I want to be, you can be like gods, is the lie that the serpent yeah. told our first. You can be like, and that's, why that's do people the in the modern warning. world, this has been going on up and down human history. It goes back to the beginning. Why do? That's why these conversations are important to remind people, this isn't a new concept. In other words, this goes back a very, very long yeah. way. Very, very long way indeed. Uh, it's an attractive lie. Hey, you can be God. Uh, Rodney Dangerfield says, you know, if you're looking out for number one, you're going to step on number two. Uh, Fair enough. No fun to be God. I would recommend anybody who is, is, is tempted to believe Nietzsche's notion of the Superman, that we can become God, to see uh, Jim Carrey's very funny movie, Roots Almighty. He's allowed to be God for a day. It's not fun. <laughs> I have a hard enough time. One of our wisest brethren. <laughs> but Harry Truman was wise enough to say, in this great land of ours, every little kid that's born an American citizen has a chance to someday wind up in the Oval Office. That's just a chance a poor little bastard has to take. I love it. <laughs> how does you know, that, having that authority. <laughs> how does that relate with the law, natural law, which we were talking about? Because a lot of time what we're seeing in the culture now, like social justice warriors, and there's a place for that. Um, I've read the social doctrine of, of the Catholic Church, and it, Absolutely. listen, we're bound to that. Um, as Catholics, it's a compendium to the to the catechism itself. Um, how does that relate um, along with the deposit of faith to what you just said, by definition, the natural law? Okay. Uh, natural law is known by reason and conscience. Uh, the deposit of faith is known by faith. That's why it's called the deposit of faith. Uh, what Jesus taught to his apostles, and he authorized them to... Uh, ordained successors to keep teaching it throughout history. They're called the bishops of the Catholic Church. This is the original deposit of faith, and it gets interest. It, uh, uh, it grows leaves. We, we understand it better and better. It's what Newman called the development of doctrine. Uh, the Catholic Church has never taught anything new. The Catholic Church is essentially conservative because uh, not necessarily politically, but religiously, because Jesus is the, the final thing. The final revelation. There's, there's nothing he left out. All we have to do is unpack that deposit, uh, unwrap the present, understand it more and more. But there's no new present, no new Messiah. Uh, so the deposit of faith is something that our faith in Christ 
is the reason for. Uh, I'm a Catholic because I believe the Catholic Church was founded by Christ. I'm a Catholic for the same reason that Protestants are Protestants. They believe that the Catholic Church was not founded by Christ. They want to be Christians. Christ is their Lord. Christ is our Lord, too. So we're, we don't differ about Christ. We differ about the Spirit. We don't, I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Creepy, we don't differ about Christ. We, you said we differ about the church. Right. Okay. You just break it for a second. And in terms of like, uh, you know, the social doctrine, um, and again, you hear a lot of the social justice warriors out there, and somehow they seem to trump um, the deposit of faith in some, uh, you know, way, shape, or form. And I don't believe in that as a Catholic. It's part of, uh, and, and frankly, I don't think that's correct. I think they're all equal. Um, you know, the deposit of faith is an extension of the social doctrine of the church. Uh, and so is scripture. It, it's all on the same plane. And and you have to basically, um, as a Catholic, in my view, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you have to ex- like accept all of them equally. Am I wrong in that idea? No, no, you misspoke. You meant to say that the social doctrine of the church is an extension of the deposit of faith rather than vice versa. Okay, fair enough. Positive faith is what Jesus taught. He taught some things about social doctrine, uh, not as much as uh, you have in the Quran, where you have a, an elaborate political program, which is uh, just as essential as the, the religious doctrines. Uh, but he taught a lot of things that make a difference to your social doctrine. For instance, give to God what belongs to God, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. All right? Caesar has some authority. Who's whose ugly head is on this coin? Caesar's. Oh, that belongs to Caesar. All right. Then he says, pay taxes, pay taxes. All right. There's an implied social doctrine there. Uh, He called uh, the greatest of the prophets. All right. When soldiers came to John the Baptist, they said, uh, what do you say we should do? Should we give up being being soldiers? He said, no. Give up bullying people uh, and uh, be honest and just and so on. Um, so Christianity doesn't necessitate pacifism, although it doesn't forbid it either. So there's there's enough hints in the original faith about social doctrine that you can plant this plant, and then you know, what happens when it produces fruits and flowers in different times? For instance, take, take the just war doctrine. Uh, in an age of possible nuclear war, uh, that doctrine has to expand. You have to deal with uh, civilian casualties in a different way when you have nuclear weapons around than when one knight with a sword was trying to kill another knight with a sword. So the applications of the principles uh, are something new. Thomas Aquinas says you can add to the natural law, you can't subtract from it. The principles are in place. The applications get more and more complicated as society goes on. In that sense, uh, there is a realm for moral relativism. Uh, When circumstances change, the applications of those unchanging laws have to change too. People have rights, but those rights can be specified increasingly in history. So there's certainly room for a lot of progress in understanding the natural law and the deposit of faith. Dr. Creep, you said... um you famously said, uh, because you mentioned relativism again, so let's let's stay on there for a second. We have about, yeah. I don't know, five and a half minutes before we'll take our first break. Talk about this a little bit. You said, quote, 
No culture in history has ever embraced moral relativism and survived. Our, now, because again, we're talking about America in this, right now. Our own culture, the, culture, therefore, will either one, be the first and disprove history's clearest lesson, or two, persist in its relativism and die, or three, repent of its relativism and live. There is no other option. We got about five minutes or so before the break, Dr. Creep. Talk about that because America needs to wake. We, we need to raise our consciousness to the dangers of, the, of, of applying this morally relativistic view in our culture and in our politics and our society. There's a very important value in Latin that doesn't get well translated into English. The Latin word pietas is usually translated piety. People think of piety as a, uh, a kind of emotion uh, that's a kind of option that's not terribly important. But pietas in uh, even pagan Roman society was an essential virtue. It meant respect for, first of all, the gods, whoever they are, uh, whatever is religious, whatever is superhuman, whatever is a higher power, that demands respect. Secondly, respect for your family and for the institution of the family. And, second, and thirdly, respect for your country, because you're a, 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 a reason. Uh, it's not forced upon you. Those three kinds of piety naturally go together. And the four societies that lasted the longest were the most peaceful and the most successful all had a lot of piety. That is a lot of respect for religion, the family, and their society. Uh, they are Jewish society, which lasted for 4,000 years. Um, Confucian society, Confucian China, lasted about 2,000 years. Uh, Islamic society, 1,400 years old, and the Roman Empire itself lasted about 700 years. Uh, we're still the new kids on the block. <laughs> we're only 300 years old, less than that. So it remains to be seen whether we're going to be in that list of successful long-life societies or not. But all societies die. We're going to die, too. The question is, are we going to live long and prosper before we die? Or are we going to die prematurely? You know, America is not heaven. America is a great place. No, no, absolutely right. not. People, not people do need, Dr. Creek, we, we say on the show all the time, people do need to, we need to get away from this. Uh, and we, we are patriots. We do, we, we love our country. We're born here. We're born in North New Jersey, okay? I wasn't born, Joe wasn't born in Castelnova di Conza, Sicily, okay? Or uh, Italy. So we love our country. We don't We don't like the direction our country's going on. And we need to stop with this idolatry of America. We have problems, most of which we're talking about today, moral relativism being at the, I would say, at the root of it. And we need to, we need to reform, not replace America. We need to reform or else, like you said, it'll die. We have a couple minutes, Joe. You want to get into? Um... Yeah, just real quick. I love what you said uh, that the social doctrine comes from the deposit of, you see, it's being inverted. Um, I inverted it in, in error. And I'm so glad you made that distinction um, because I, I don't think it can be like stressed enough. Many times people try to remove Christ from the body, uh, the church. You can't remove social justice from the deposit of faith. They're, they're intertwined. And in fact, it actually comes from the deposit of faith. And we see that constantly in the culture. It will lead to nothing. 
ultimately, in my view, could you elaborate on that just a little bit? We have a little bit of time left before the break. Yeah, the deposit of faith is uh, a touchstone. If anything contradicts it, it's wrong. So if the left says that, uh, you know, throw out sexual morality, they're wrong. If the right says throw out hospitality and preferential option to the poor, they're wrong. Uh, Social doctrines of the church uh, conform to the deposit of faith, not vice versa. And they don't conform to human whims. they're, they're based on the solidest foundation that we have, namely God incarnate, the teaching of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you want a good summary of the basic principles of the Church's social doctrine, the, the clearest book that I've ever read is Society and Sanity by Frank Sheed. Frank Sheed is sort of the English version of, uh, of Fulton Sheen. Uh, brilliant, very clear guy. He, uh, he did a lot of street evangelism, uh, and he wrote a lot of books about it. And uh, his book on Catholic theology, Theology of Sanity, is a classic, basic uh, guide to Catholic theology. And Society and Sanity is a basic guide to Catholic moral and social. Highly recommend. Excellent. So let's take a minute, all right, and then uh, and we'll pick it up on the other side of the break. Uh, you're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Rosanello. We're on the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Please make sure you like and subscribe and share and all that fun stuff on social media. You can find Joe and I on Facebook and YouTube, and we're having a great conversation, uh, and we're grateful for it for, with Dr. Peter Kreeft, and we, were talk, we are talking about the unity that exists between the natural law, the deposit of the faith, and the social doctrine of the Catholic Church. So stick around, and we'll be back in a couple minutes. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened. Parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas. Tell your friends to tune in. And let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello having a very important conversation with Dr. Peter Kreeft. We're talking about the unity that exists between the natural law, the deposit of the faith, and the social doctrine of the Catholic Church. And with that, I am going to hand it over to Joe Racinello, and we'll keep the conversation going. You also mentioned, uh, Doctor, in the last segment that the faith evolves. Um, I'd like to expand on that idea. You see that in some corners of the church, they're saying, you know, the faith can evolve. um, But at the same time, you mentioned in the last segment that the deposit of faith remains the same. It's, you can't like, you know, recreate what is perfect. Could you kind of like, like uh, expand on that idea? Um, You know, because I think these are a lot, there's a lot of arguments that are going on, I think that need to be cleared up and I think they're very important arguments as well. I use the word evolve not in the strict scientific Darwinian sense, but in a more general sense. Uh, you evolve. Your body evolves. It grows. It changes. It doesn't same. You're not two years old anymore. And yet it's your body, not my body. It doesn't change into an ape. It doesn't change into a woman, uh, even though you, you want it to. So that's the way the faith evolves. It grows from within. Uh, a building doesn't grow from within. You can put additional stories onto a building, but they're put on from outside. 
Uh, and human laws like that we can add a lot of human laws. There are presently something like a million laws on the books and nobody knows all of them, which is why we need so many lawyers. <laughs> well, we don't need them. I will, I will, I will resist the temptation to tell any lawyer jokes. <laughs> but, uh, but an organism, an organism grows from within, not from without. That's the difference between something that's living and something that's dead. And the deposit of faith is living. Uh, if you were to ask some Christian in the first century, do you believe in the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, that God is uh, uh, one in nature and three in person? And do you believe that uh, there's no contradiction between God's threeness and God's oneness because there's a distinction between the person and the nature? They would say, I have the faintest idea what you're talking about. I've heard of that. They wouldn't deny it. They, they, they wouldn't understand it. Over the centuries, the church has developed and explained and uh, explored its doctrine and, and, and taught them more, uh, more clearly and more adequately. Uh, the word uh, Trinity is not even in the Bible. Uh, the word transubstantiation was invented in the early Middle Ages. And if you ask an early Christian, do you believe in transubstantiation? He said, what does that mean? But he believed in the reality that that word named. That uh, uh, when the Eucharist is, is consecrated, it is worthy of worship because it is truly Christ's really present body and blood, soul, and divinity. So those are examples of, of the evolution doctrine. Let me let me put an example out there. And if I'm wrong, I, I think it's a linear thought. Um, the natural law says that marriage is between a man and a woman. Our deposit of faith from Scripture tells us also that a man and a woman are to marry and there is no no uh, basic anything substitute, out, substitute for it. Mm -hmm. But social justice says otherwise. So no, it doesn't true. No, it doesn't true. Social justice says you must do justice to nature. Amen. And human nature says marriage is <laughs> between a man and a woman. I love it. But, but this is, that's, what, not, is so, that's not social justice. That's social injustice. Uh, you see, that is what I, I, I would agree. And that's where I, I don't. And you see these discussions going on. And I'm so glad that you, you know, made that distinction. Um, that's what people are calling it. It's just for two men or two women to get married. Um, and in a Catholic, I, you know, like thought process, all of which come from the same plane. Um, I'm glad, like I said, I, I wanted to throw that out there because I think it's a very practical example yeah. of what's happening. Yeah. Well, it's very practical because we can argue on the basis of natural law and reason rather than on the basis of faith when you're arguing with a non-Catholic. They'll say, well, that's just your religious doctrine. You know, the church is, is homophobic. And the answer is, first of all, it isn't. It says homosexuals are created in God's image and called to be saints and be treated with dignity. And secondly, it also says that uh, uh, there's no such thing as homosexual marriage. That's like a four-sided triangle. And that can be argued rationally. Well, that's important. That's, that's important not, for you to say. That's an article of faith. Yeah, I, I, and, and more people yes. need to start arguing. Like when we say argue, you know what I mean? Like argue and debate, and, you know, with the culture is that we need to start asserting rather than defend the truth, marriage being between one man and one woman. I think one of the things we need to start doing is asserting uh, through our reason, asserting the truth that marriage is only between one man and one woman, not to defend it, but to attack other positions. Well, how can marriage be anything other than, let's say, one man and one woman? Because we find ourselves, especially in the modern culture, and uh, you know, and you're in, you're in academia, 
So you probably hear it a lot more than we do. Okay, the modern culture, you know, doesn't want have doesn't want to you know have those debates. Okay, they just want to simply mm-hmm. posit something. You have to believe it to be true, and that's it. And we well, need. That's the real problem. That's the real problem. If you're arguing with a Catholic, you can appeal to faith. If you're arguing with a reasonable non-Catholic, you can appeal to reason. But suppose you're arguing with somebody who's neither Catholic nor reasonable and doesn't believe in reason and just says, well, this is the way I see it. Uh, That's my truth and that's your truth and I'm going to beat you. What can you do? You can try to persuade him to argue rationally. Uh, you, you, You can say, hey, if you're a relativist, is relativism relative or is that absolute? (laughs) <laughs> and if you're a skeptic, are you a dogmatic skeptic or are you a skeptical about your skepticism? You might, you might show him that he's contradicting himself, but he'll probably say, so what? I don't care about contradicting myself. This is the way I feel. And the last thing you can say to him, well, well, then you're playing God. Then your feelings are the, the, the touchstone for reality. My will be done. That's, that's, that's your philosophy. That was also Hitler's philosophy. Whose philosophy? Hitler. A lot of people say, a lot of people say Hitler's. Oh, a lot of people say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Uh, my reply to that is, that's what the devil says, too. He's very spiritual. <laughs> You're a spirit. You, you, talk about what, you talk about getting somebody angry, Dr. Creep. But you mentioned, I want to hand this over to Joe, because he had a... You have to get them angry. Well, oh, we do. We, we do. <laughs> <laughs> we do, Dr. Creep. Good, good. That's, that's, that's when the adrenaline starts flowing, and, and the brain starts moving. Otherwise, they sit with a happy smile and say, fine, that's the truth. This is my truth. Let's, let's just agree to differ, uh, and let's, let's just smoke pot together. Well, I'm glad you got on that. <laughs> no argument. I'm glad you got on that, Dr. Griffith. I want to hand it over to Joe because uh, let's let's talk about people's, let's say, what makes people feel good, pleasure and pain, because Joe wanted to talk about utilitarianism. So I'm going to hand it over to him. Yeah, ple- obviously, uh, utilitarianism weighs um, consequences, pleasure and pain theory, uh, you know, weighing the good and the bad. And Catholic talk looks at three things, intention, nature of the act itself, and then the uh, and then it considers the consequence of the act. Explain to our listeners how utilitarianism is incomplete versus Catholic thought. The essence of utilitarianism is that what makes any act morally right is that it produces the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. And happiness is defined simply as pleasure. Well, that might sound good, but uh, the results of that are awful. Suppose, suppose the three of us are together in a room, and suppose the two of you are cannibals, and I'm not. Well, what would cause the most pleasure is for you to kill me and eat me. You'd have two people that were very happy, and only one per- person is unhappy. Uh, <laughs> if if Colonel Dreyfus was in fact innocent and all the Frenchmen wanted him declared guilty and they'd riot if uh, they wouldn't, uh, then it's the right thing to do, to lie and say this man is guilty and deserving of death. That's exactly the argument of, of Caiaphas, the high priest, about Jesus. Here, uh, he's, he's innocent, of course. He doesn't deserve to die, but we should kill him anyway because he's making trouble. And if he continues to make trouble, very probably the consequences will be there'll be a riot and thousands of people will be killed. So in order to save these thousands of lives, let's murder this innocent person. In other words, utilitarianism says, forget the fact that some acts are right and some acts are wrong. Not true. No objective moral law. There's no Ten Commandments. There's nothing that's intrinsically good or intrinsically bad. It all depends on what people make of them. 
And if it makes them happy, fine. Uh, by that standard, if it made uh, hundreds of, of, of thousands, no, if it made, let's say, 60 million Germans happy to exterminate 6 million Jews, that was a good act to produce the greatest happiness. That's not an ethic at all. That's, that's pseudo-ethic. Utilitarianism is, is one of the lowest ethical systems in the history of the world. Mm. The, the, way, the, the reason why I love the, the way you're, you're putting it, Dr. Kreeft, is that, again, you're not making an argument from faith. You're making an yeah. argument from reason and intelligence. And I dare say that when you do talk like that, and you're a nice guy, Dr. Creek, I want to say that, and we just met you today, but we've seen you in a number of interviews. You're a nice guy. You're going to get a lot of people angry because they will not be able to, with their own reason and intelligence, answer you. They will fall back on emotion because, what, again, what you just said, yes, it is what the Catholic Church teaches, but it does not require faith. Does it require faith? If you just, don't get any ang- if you don't get anybody angry, you're not a good disciple of Jesus. He got a lot of people angry. <laughs> I agree. I love it. <laughs> Jesus rocked the boat. We're about rocking the boat too. Believe it. Um, I want to I want to talk relate this to the Bostock hearing. Actually, this question because I think this is um, or case rather, uh, and Alito had a lot of really great things to say about it. What's the difference between people's individual right? versus the society's duty to create laws that apply to all for the common good. In Bostock, you see some individual like like aspects of that, if you ask me, that are not taking the common good um, in, into like, you know, effect, basically. Could you talk a little bit about that in relation to Bostock? Now we're getting into something that has a large utilitarian element in it. Uh, obviously, there are rights of the individual. Obviously, the common good is in itself more important than the private good, and often the private good has to be sacrificed for the common good. For instance, uh, in, in a military draft or even in paying taxes. Uh, how do you balance those two things? There's no one formula that I know of that's right for all time and all places. But you can't deny either of the principles that individuals have inalienable rights that are not given to them by the government and can't be removed by the government on the one hand, or that the goods that individuals receive are received not just for their own private benefit, but for the common good. Those are two principles that can't change. But to apply those principles to a situation where there's a kind of a balance between them is, is quite tricky. That's where you need the virtue of prudence or practical wisdom. Uh, the medieval it meant your awareness of the principles and your ability to reason your way to reasonable conclusions in applying those principles. And both of those are powers that every human being has. Although a lot of people today just don't want to exercise them by killing instead of reason. Excellent. So I, I, I think that's why we have a Supreme Court, because there are indeed tricky questions about application, and there are reasonable uh, arguments for, for two sides. And the Supreme Court can make mistakes. It obviously made a mistake in the Dred Scott decision, which says blacks are not completely personal. It obviously made a mistake in Roe v. Wade and said that human beings aren't human. Or, uh, well, maybe they are, but we don't care. Uh, 
the principles are infallible, the applications aren't. Right, right. Uh, Dr. Kreef, in your book, uh, Jesus Shock, you wrote this line. You said, quote, God gives us not only the truth, but also the ability to believe it. Not only the new thing to see, but also the new eye to see it with. I think in America, that was close quote. I think in America, we need some, you mentioned the natural law. It's something that we all know. I think what we're suffering from is a set of old eyes in this country. Talk about that a little bit, the need to, to, for, to look, at, look at things in a new way. I can talk to unbelievers about that in terms of just being honest and using your reason. I can talk to believers about that in a much deeper way. And the answer there is pray, because God is the first cause of everything good, not just external material goods like food uh, and health, but also internal goods, including thought. Who's responsible for your best thoughts? Just you? Or is God the first cause of that? Does God inspire good thoughts? Just as God's the first cause of, of, of a very good outside of you, he's also the first cause of every good inside of you. So ask God to illumine your conscience, to, uh, to give light. He gives not only physical light from the sun, which is necessary for, for natural life, he also gives spiritual light. The Holy Spirit is the so-called anonymous person of the Trinity. He, he works invisibly and inside of you. And when we get to heaven, I think we're going to be amazed at uh, how many of those things that we thought came from us really came from him. So let's ask him. He says, ask and you shall receive. He waits to give us good things, not just from outside, but from inside, until we pray, because he sees that we need prayer more than we need the things that we pray for. You know, Dr. Creep, when I read that quote, what Im- immediately jumped into my mind was grace. God gives us grace and grace is real. Like I could think of many times in my life um, that there is no way that I could have lived a certain way without grace. I'll use an example, living a chaste life outside of marriage. There's no way I could do that without grace and grace is real and people don't believe it. Like, like the modern world, how best can we communicate that to people? The reality of grace, God's real hand on us in the modern world. He's still actively working with us. He's still here. How do we communicate that reality? If you're trying to communicate it to a Christian, uh, it's a lot easier than to a non-Christian. Uh, Jesus is still here. He is the Lord, not just of the world, but in a deeper sense of the church. And through our baptism, his life actually operates in every soul that has been baptized and is a part of the church. Uh, and that's a a resource that's like dynamite. All we have to do is light the fuse. He promises, asking you to receive. If, if only our faith were simple enough to believe what he said and to believe his promises, we would we would have a powerhouse. We have a, a dynamo. I agree. And, you know, Mother Teresa used to said that, say that. She used to say, I take Christ at his word. You yeah. know, like th- just, and it made me think of that when you said that. Jesus. Christ was not Christ was not a politician. 
Thank goodness. Yeah, you can trust him. <laughs> Thank goodness. And, you know, but that comes down to, like you said, I, I've, I've often gone into adoration uh, with that open minded, like sense of ask and receive how God basically like he illuminates your mind. He opens you up. He gives you courage. Um, a, a priest, a very good priest, uh, a friend of our show said adoration is radiation. It shrinks the self. It expands the mind. You just sit there and you sit in front of Christ. You feel the tangible presence. It strengthens you to do things you never thought you could. I can't even believe I'm having this conversation. I mean, if you talk to my friends from college, they would think, you know, I can't even believe Joe is having this conversation, but he is. And that's God's grace. It's real. It's real. It's as real as we are. It's as real as sunlight. When you sit on the beach uh, and you're cold and you're in the sun for an hour, it makes a difference. And if you're there for six hours, it also makes a difference. You have sunburn. Uh, everything that exists makes a difference. But certain things like sunlight make a difference between life and death. And grace is like sunlight. Uh, you don't have to beg God for it. You just have to ask him for it. He... he, he He's shining all the time. He can't stop loving you, but you can stop accepting it. The, the light keeps shining. All you have to do is open your eyes. You don't generate the light. Open your eyes, and he gives it to you. Now, there's a trick to that uh, from God's point of view. Fortunately, we're not God, so we don't have to master that trick. But grace somehow doesn't demean our nature. It doesn't substitute for it. It doesn't say, you can't do your homework, I'll do it for you. It actualizes our nature. Grace perfects our nature. Just as, as sunlight gives energy to, to all things that grow. So when we come up with a good idea rationally, uh, that doesn't mean that that's not grace too. But is operating through our reason, through our will, through our choices, through our human nature. You're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello, and we're having a great conversation with Dr. Peter Kreeft. Um, please make sure you download the Veritas mobile app, and you can hear us on 1350 AM on your dial. So, Dr. Kreeft, um, we have about, I don't know, about eight or nine minutes left, and we want to talk about mercy a bit. Uh, we had on, uh, we talked to Raymond Arroyo recently. He recently wrote a book about Dismas, the good, the thief who stole heaven. Um, and uh, talk, we had a, a short conversation, but we we're talking about God's mercy. With that, I'm going to hand it over to Joe. You wrote in the philosophy of Tolkien, uh, the worldview behind the Lord of the Rings, this, you said it is mercy, not justice or courage or even heroism that alone can defeat evil. I think that's interesting because I think a lot of times people um, in this war, culture war, in these political debates, they feel that, you know, they hold the justice like out strict justice or or even to be honest with you, heroism, um, but it's mercy, God's mercy that will defeat evil. Could you talk about that? That's an extremely practical point. We're all sinners, we're all stupid, we all need mercy. And if we don't give it, uh, there's no reason for us to expect to get it. Uh, usually arguments between political parties or between nations uh, go by justice alone. Here, uh, Palestinians and Jews are both arguing in terms of justice. 
and they're both complaining about the other side's injustice. And they're both appealing to justice. And they're all courageous. And they'll all sacrifice their lives. And they've been fighting this way for almost a century. Uh, they won't forgive. Uh, without forgiveness, without mercy, without going beyond justice, human relationships don't work. We are flawed, fallible, mistaken human beings. Uh, and if we don't accept that fact and pretend that we can uh, create a, a utopia of justice, uh, we'll never do it. Uh, one of the reasons both Jews and Muslims don't accept Christ is that he emphasized mercy more than justice, and he didn't use force to, to triumph. He, he, he suffered, he died. Uh, the Quran says he couldn't possibly be Allah's prophet because Allah would never allow one of his prophets to be disgraced. And most of the Jews who rejected Christ said he can't be the Messiah because the Messiah is gonna beat our enemies and our enemies are the Romans and he's apolitical. They wanted force. Uh, the Jews had a great uh, uh, argument for justice. The Romans were very unjust and tyrannical. Uh, and Jesus didn't appeal so much to justice. He appealed to mercy, to, to, to love, to agape, self-sacrifice. The power that was released on the cross uh, was like, like the power of the atom bomb. It was, it was the power that came from the very essence of, of, of the Trinity is self-sacrificial love and that saved the world there's no greater power than that i i think I, it's 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 when when someone sees like because mercy is given it's undeserved yeah. i think that's like the the important aspect to it that that i see it a person when you give mercy to someone it's not like you deserve it we didn't deserve mercy yet god gave it if you were talking specifically about justice you might say, oh, I know, and that's obviously I'm in trouble. That, well, <laughs> no, but that, but that's no, you're joking. But it, but it actually is true because if, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Doctor Grief. The the definition of justice is to give one his due. Joe likes to say on the show all the time, none of us deserve heaven if we go by strict justice. We're all in a stupidest, lot of trouble. The stupidest thing you could ever ask for from God is justice. Yes, because. That justice might come your your way. Exactly. So you're you're, you're absolutely. Ask for mercy. Go ahead, Joe. I'm sorry. But I think that's where when we give mercy to someone when it's not, uh, I guess, like warranted, it stops traffic. That's like what yeah. made when you said like it's like the atomic bomb. It because it defies um, reason. I mean, like you did bad to me, I'm going to do bad to you. But when you don't, that person is like almost taken back. I mean, I've had even experiences like that in my own life. Uh, now, where I, I've got to add something here, though. If you don't, first of all, believe in justice, there's no such thing as mercy. Justice defines mercy as going beyond justice. So little kids have to be taught justice first. I remember when our kids were little, uh, we, we weren't pacifists, but we were militarists either. So we didn't give our kids guns. And uh, I remember watching my son at the age of four or three, maybe, uh, since he didn't have toy guns, he made them out of uh, branches of trees and played cops and robbers with the other kids. I said, no, oh, well, it's human nature. And I listened to him. And uh, they, were, they were teaching each other justice. Today, I'm the cop. You'll be the robber. I got to shoot you. Well, OK, but tomorrow uh, I'm the cop and you'll be the robber. and I shoot you. Right. <laughs> Cops always shot the robbers, not vice versa. They learned justice games. First. And I thought that was that was 
got quite natural. In the Old Testament, God is big on justice. Uh, and it's rather crude and primitive. He's treating his chosen people as uh, four-year-olds. Teach them justice. Remind them that mercy is greater than justice. They won't fully understand that until later when they get more mature. And that's us too. Yeah. Mercy goes beyond justice, but it presupposes justice. Abraham Lincoln actually said, I get more out of mercy than out of justice. Um, you get more out of a person through mercy than justice. Again, which goes against the human like spirit. Cause again, you punch me, I punch you. And that's just many people feel that they'll say, well, you deserved it. You got what you deserved. Um, but that's not the way of the Christian. That's not the way of Christ. You know, we, you don't forget about the law because the law is important. Like you said, there is justice, but mercy is given when it's not deserved to us. We don't deserve the mercy that's given to us by Christ. And, and think of it, think of it in terms of uh, how Dr. Kreef put it too. Remember, just to get, take in terms of, let's say, how the world operates. If if nations, if, with, with all these squabbles and skirmishes and maybe some bitter hatreds that go back hundreds of years, if at one point in history, any of these two groups and said, you know what? We choose to be merciful and forget about our past hatreds and bitterness and resentment. Let's be merciful towards one another. That changes the world. That's how Christ changed the world. Remember, what, what's the greatest injustice ever committed by human beings? Nailing their God to a, the, cre the creature, nailing the creator to a cross. And from the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He shows mercy. And that's the greatest crime. You could take every other crime in human history. That's the greatest crime. It's so important. Dr. Kreef, we have about a minute and a half left. We'd love for you to give our audience some final thoughts on this really wonderful conversation and perhaps where uh, folks out there could buy your books and, and learn more about what you're doing. You summed it up pretty nicely. The, uh, the, the holiday that we're going to celebrate in two days which we dare to call Good Friday, uh, celebrates the most unjust, the most horrific, the most evil event in history. Why do we call it Good Friday? Because this was turned around by Christ. Uh, Christ turned the world on its head on the cross. Uh, it's the most shocking thing that ever happened. And if that can happen there, if he can turn the greatest evil into the greatest good, salvation, uh, and if we're cells in his body, and if we're doing his work, we have to do that same thing in little ways. When, when people do injustices to us, for us to forgive our enemies, uh, that's going to stop traffic. Absolutely. Nothing else will. Absolutely. Dr. Kreef, we have to leave it there. We thank you so much for joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe. And thank you, dear brothers and sisters, for joining us here on the Veritas Catholic Network, bringing the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York metropolitan area, 1350 on your AM dial. For all Veritas content, please be sure to download our Veritas Catholic Network mobile app. Also, please be sure to follow Joe and I on Facebook and YouTube until they shut us down, of course. Like, subscribe, share hit that little bell, do all that fun stuff. And please remember until next time that our conversation is your conversation and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.